You're listening to Stanford Out Loud. We bring you stories from Stanford Magazine featuring voices of our campus community. I'm your host, Kevin Cool, editor of Stanford Magazine. It began with an ad in the classifieds. Male college students needed for psychological study of prison life. $15 per day for one to two weeks. More than 70 people came forward to take part. The study was to be conducted in a fake prison housed inside Jordan Hall on Stanford's main quad. The leader of the study was 38-year-old psychology professor Philip Zimbardo. Zimbardo and his fellow researchers selected 24 applicants and randomly assigned each to be either a prisoner or a guard. Zimbardo encouraged the guards to think of themselves as actual guards in a real prison. He made it clear that prisoners could not be physically harmed, but said the guards should try to create an atmosphere in which the prisoners felt powerless. The study began on Sunday, August 17, 1971. More than 40 years later, the Stanford Prison Experiment remains among the most notable and notorious research projects ever carried out at the university. In this episode of Stanford Out Loud, you will hear the voices of six key players as they reflect on how that one week in August changed their lives. Dr. Philip Zimbardo, the leader of the study, acted as the prison superintendent. The study was focused originally on how individuals adapt to being in a relatively powerless situation. I was interested in prisoners and was not really interested in the guards. It was really meant to be a single, dramatic demonstration of the power of situations on human behavior. We expected that we would write some articles about it and move on. After the end of the first day, I said, there's nothing here. Nothing's happening. The guards had this anti-authority mentality. They felt awkward in their uniforms. They didn't get into the guard mentality until the prisoners started to revolt. Throughout the experiment, there was this conspiracy of denial. Everyone involved was in effect denying that this was an experiment and agreeing that this is a prison run by psychologists. There was zero time for reflection. We had to feed the prisoners three meals a day, deal with the prisoner breakdowns, deal with their parents, run a parole board. By the third day, I was sleeping in my office. I had become the superintendent of the Stanford County Jail. Even my posture changed. When I walked through the prison yard, I was walking with my hands behind my back, the way generals walk when they're inspecting troops. We had arranged for everyone involved, the prisoners, guards, and staff, to be interviewed on Friday by other faculty members and graduate students who had not been involved in the study. Christina Maslach, who had just finished her PhD, came down the night before. She's standing outside the guard quarters and watching the guards line up the prisoners for the 10 p.m. toilet run. The prisoners come out, and the guards put bags over their heads, chain their feet together, make them put their hands on each other's shoulders like a chain gang. They're yelling and cursing at them. Christina starts tearing up and says... I can't look at this. I ran after her, and we had the argument outside Jordan Hall. She said, it's terrible what you're doing to these boys. How can you see what I saw and not care about the suffering? But I didn't see what she saw, and suddenly began to feel ashamed. This is when I realized I had been transformed by the prison study to become the prison administrator. 
At that point, I said, you're right. We've got to end the study. The day after the study ended, there was an escape attempt at San Quentin Prison and former Black Panther George Jackson was shot and killed. Three weeks after that, there's the Attica prison riot. Suddenly, prisons are hot. Two government investigating committees start hearings and I'm flown out to Washington to present to a congressional subcommittee on the nature of prisons. I went from knowing nothing firsthand about prison to being an expert, but I worked hard to learn more. I visited a number of correctional facilities all over the country. I organized a program for Stanford students to teach a course out of prison. For years, I had an active correspondence with at least 20 different prisoners. As a result of the prison study, I really became more aware of the central role of power in our lives. I became more aware of the power I have as a teacher. I started consciously doing things to minimize the negative use of power in the classroom. I encouraged students to challenge me. I think I became more self-reflective, I'm more generous, and more open because of that experience. I think it made me a better person. The next voice you'll hear is that of Craig Haney, who was a graduate student at the time of the experiment. Haney was responsible for overseeing the experiment and analyzing the data gathered from it. He went on to become a leading authority on the psychological effects of incarceration and an advocate for prison reform. What we thought we were going to find is that there would be subtle behavioral changes that would take place over time. There were moments in the course of deciding about whether to do this study where we wavered, not because we thought it would go too far or be too dramatic, but because we weren't sure anything was going to happen. I remember at one point asking, what if they just sit around playing the guitar for two weeks? What in the hell are we going to do then? People have said to me, you must have known what was going to happen. But we didn't, and we were not naive. We were very well-read in the psychological literature, and we just did not anticipate these kinds of things happening. It really was a unique experience to watch human behavior transform in front of your eyes. And I can honestly say that I try never to forget it. I spent a lot of time with real prisoners and real guards nowadays, and having seen what I saw then while a graduate student gave me respect for the power of institutional environments to transform good people into something else. I also realized how quickly we get used to things that are shocking one day and a week later become matter of fact. During the study when we decided to move prisoners to different parts of the prison, we realized that they were going to see where they were and be reminded they're not in a prison. They're just in the psych building at Stanford, and we didn't want that to happen. So we put bags over their heads. The first time I saw that, it was shocking. But by the next day, we're putting bags on their heads and not thinking about it. That happens all the time in real correctional facilities. You just get used to it. I do a lot of work in solitary confinement units on the psychological effects of supermax prisons. In places like that, when prisoners undergo so-called therapy or counseling, they're kept in actual cages. I constantly remind myself never to get used to seeing those cages. The prisoners in this study were downtrodden by the end of it. Even the guys who didn't break down were hurting. This was a really difficult experience for all of us. And for me, that was a lesson too. Real prisoners learn how to mask their pain and suffering like it doesn't matter. The prison study showed what it feels like for people who have not learned how to wear that mask, that implacable mask. 
I try to talk to prisoners about what their lives are really like. And I don't think that I would have come to that kind of empathy had I not seen what I saw at Stanford. If someone had said that in six days you can take 10 healthy college kids at the peak of their resilience and break them down by subjecting them to things that are commonplace and relatively mild by the standards of real prisons, I'm not sure I would have believed it if I hadn't seen it for myself happening. The third voice in this episode is that of David Eshelman, who was a student at Chapman University at the time of the experiment. He was assigned the role of a prison guard. I was just looking for some summer work. I had a chance of doing this or working in a pizza parlor. I thought this would be an interesting and different way of finding summer employment. The only person I knew going in was John Mark. He was another guard and wasn't even on my shift. That was critical. If there were prisoners in there who knew me before they encountered me, then I never would have been able to pull off anything I did. The act that I put on, they would have seen through it immediately. What came over me was not an accident. It was planned. I set out with a definite plan in mind to try to force the action and force something to happen so that the researchers would have something to work with. After all, what could they learn from guys sitting around like it was a country club? So I consciously created a persona. I was in all kinds of drama productions in high school and college. It was something I was very familiar with, to take on another personality before you step out onto the stage. I was kind of running my own experiment in there by saying, how far can I push these things, and how much abuse will these people take before they say, knock it off? But the other guards didn't stop me. They seemed to join in. They were taking my lead. Not a single guard said, I don't think we should do this. The fact that I ramped up the intimidation and the mental abuse without any real sense as to whether I was hurting anybody, well, I definitely regret that. But in the long run, no one suffered any lasting damage. When the Abu Ghraib scandal broke, my first reaction was, this is so familiar to me. I know exactly what was going on. I could picture myself in the middle of that and watching it spin out of control. When you have little or no supervision as to what you're doing and no one steps in and says, hey, you can't do this, things just keep escalating. You think, how can we top what we did yesterday? How do we do something even more outrageous? I felt a deep sense of familiarity with that whole situation. Sometimes when people know about the experiment and then meet me, it's like, my God, this guy's a psycho. But everyone who knows me would just laugh at that. The next voice in this episode is that of Richard Yako, who was assigned the role of prisoner. The first thing that really threw me off was the sleep deprivation. When they woke us up the first time, I had no idea it was after only four hours of sleep. It was only after they got us up, and we did some exercises, and then they let us go back to bed, that I realized they were messing with our sleep cycles. That was kind of a surprise from the first night. I don't recall exactly when the prisoners started rebelling. I do remember resisting what one guard was telling me to do and being willing to go into solitary confinement. As prisoners, we developed solidarity. We realized that we could join together and do passive resistance and cause some problems. It was that era. I'd been willing to go on marches against the Vietnam War. I went on marches for civil rights and was trying to figure out what I would do to resist going into the service. So in a way, I was testing some of my own ways of rebelling or standing up for what I thought was right. 
My parents came on visitor's night. They were really concerned with the way I looked. I told them that they're breaking up our sleep, that we weren't having the chance to take showers. My appearance really concerned both of my parents, my mother especially. When I asked what I could do if I wanted to quit, I was told, you can't quit. You agreed to be here for the full experiment. That made me feel like a prisoner at that point. I realized I had made a commitment to something that I now could not change. I had made myself a prisoner. I ended up being paroled by the parole board. They released me Thursday night. That's when they told me they were going to end the experiment the next day. What I learned later is that the reason they chose me is because they thought I'd be the next guy to break down. I was surprised because I never thought I was going through any kind of depression or anything like that. One thing that I thought was interesting about the experiment was whether if you believe society has assigned you a role, do you then assume the characteristics of that role? I teach at an inner city high school in Oakland. These kids don't have to go through experiments to witness horrible things. But what frustrates my colleagues and me is that we're creating great opportunities for these kids. We offer great support for them. Why are they not taking advantage of it? Why are they dropping out of school? Why are they coming to school unprepared? I think a big reason is what the prison study shows. They fall into the role their society has made for them. Participating in the Stanford Prison Experiment is something I can use and share with students. This was one week of my life, and I was a teenager. And yet here it is, 40 years later, and it's still something that had enough of an impact on society that people are still interested in it. You never know what you're going to get involved in that will turn out to be a defining moment in your life. The fifth voice you'll hear is that of John Mark, who also was assigned the role of prison guard. I spent my sophomore year at Stanford in France and returned to campus that spring. It was one of the most pivotal times in my life. Over Thanksgiving of the year before, I went with a friend to Amsterdam. You have to remember, this was 1970. It was still basically the 60s. We went to one of those clubs where you could buy drugs. We bought hashish and actually brought some back with us. I was caught at a French border. For a few hours, I was told by the French border guards that I was going to prison. In the end, they let me go, but I definitely had been scared out of my wits. When I saw this thing about a prison experiment, I thought I had some life experiences to bring to it. I felt this was going to be an important experiment. I told them all about what I'd been through and why it was important to me to be a prisoner. I was disappointed to be a guard. I was, but I did the best I could. It was a job to us, and we were being paid more than minimum wage. That was my employer, and that was my job. During the day shift when I worked, no one did anything that was beyond what you'd expect in a situation like that. But it seemed as though Zimbardo went out of his way to create tensions. Things like forced sleep deprivation. He was really pushing the envelope. I just didn't like the whole idea of constantly disturbing people and asking them to recite their prisoner numbers in account. I certainly didn't like it when they put a prisoner in solitary confinement. At that time in my life, I was getting high. All day, just about every day. I got high before I went to the experiment. I got high afterwards. I brought joints with me, and every day I wanted to give some to the prisoners. I looked at their faces and saw how they were getting dispirited, and I felt sorry for them. 
I didn't think it was ever meant to go the full two weeks. I think Zimbardo wanted to create a dramatic crescendo and then to end it as quickly as possible. I felt that throughout the experiment, he knew what he wanted and then tried to shape the experiment by how it was constructed and how it played out to fit the conclusion that he had already worked out. He wanted to be able to say that college students, people from middle-class backgrounds, will turn on each other just because they're given a role and given power. Based on my experience and what I saw and what I felt, I think that was a real stretch. It was more than just power in terms of you're the guard and you're the prisoner. He gave us those sticks. At least according to the movie, they were used. I never saw them used, but in the movie they were used. But even if they weren't, there was physical power associated. with. I don't think the actual events match up with the bold headline. I never did, and I still haven't changed my opinion. The final voice in this episode is that of Dr. Christina Maslach, the whistleblower. She and Zimbardo married in 1972. I had just finished my doctorate and was about to leave Stanford to start my new job. Phil and I had started dating. The prison study was never anything I was considering playing a part in. During the first few days of the experiment, I did hear from Phil, but not in great detail. What I was getting, though, was a sense that it was becoming a real prison. People were not just fooling around, but actually getting caught up in the situation. But it still wasn't evident to me what that might mean. At first, Phil didn't seem different. I didn't see any change in him until I actually went down to the basement and saw the prison. I met one guard who seemed nice and sweet and charming, and then I saw him in the yard later, and I thought, oh my God, what happened here? I saw the prisoners being marched to go down to the men's room. I was getting sick to my stomach, physically ill. I said, I can't watch this. But no one else was having the same problem. Phil came after me and said, what's the matter with you? That's when I had this feeling like, I don't know you. How can you not see this? It felt like we were standing on two different cliffs across a chasm. If we had not been dating before then, if he were just another faculty member and this happened, I might have said, I'm sorry, I'm out of here, and just left. But because he was someone I was growing to like a lot, I thought that I had to figure this out. So I kept at it. I fought back and ended up having a huge argument with him. I don't think we've ever had an argument quite like that since then. I feared that if the study went on, he would become someone I no longer cared for, no longer loved, no longer respected. It's an interesting question. Suppose he kept going. What would I have done? I honestly don't know. The clearest influence the study had on me was that it raised some really serious questions about how people cope with extremely emotional, difficult situations, especially when it's part of their job, when they have to manage people or take care of them or rehabilitate them. So I started interviewing people. I started with some prison guards in a real prison and talked to them about their jobs and how they understood what they were doing. At first, I wasn't sure what I was looking for. I was just trying to listen. I interviewed people who worked in hospitals, in the ER. After a while, I realized there was a rhythm and pattern emerging. And when I described it to someone, they said, I don't know what it's called in other professions, but we call it burnout. 
and so I spent a good part of my professional life developing and defining what burnout is, what are the things that cause it, and how can we intervene and help people cope with it more effectively. All of that work on burnout had some origins in the experience I had in the prison experiment. People will sometimes come up to me at conferences, or maybe they're students who have taken psychology classes, and they'll say, oh my God, you're such a hero. What is it like to be a hero? And it's always a little surprising to me because it sure didn't feel heroic at the time. The prison study has given me a new understanding of what heroism means. It's not some egocentric, I'm going to rush into that burning building thing. It's about seeing something that needs to be addressed and saying, I need to do something to make it better. The original version of this story was written by Ramesh Ratnasar and appeared in the July 2011 issue of Stanford Magazine. Special thanks to the readers in this episode, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, Dr. Christina Maslach, David Eshelman, John Mark, Professor Craig Haney, and Richard Yako. Stanford Out Loud is produced by Charity Ferreira and Will Rogers and brought to you by the Stanford Alumni Association. For more of our stories, visit stanfordmag.org.